0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now word is living and active. And that's what we're asking God to do this morning. And so I want to introduce myself for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to meet yet. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor down here and I hope and trust that you will feel in some way the call of God in your life to join and be a part of this church. But if not this church, a church. We believe that the local church is God's plan for your life because it is people living eternally in the moment. And we believe that that is precisely what God has for each and every one of us. So I want to start, in view of all of that this morning, I want to tell you about a man named Shane Hipps. About 20 years ago, Shane was the vice president of marketing for Porsche USA. Lived in Michigan, and he did what you would imagine in the late 90s, as all Porsche executives would do. He resigned his position and uh, became a Mennonite pastor. Because, of course, when you think Mennonites, you think Porsches, right? Somehow, Shane decided, man, God's call on my life is not what I expected. I'm an I'm a executive in marketing for Porsche. I had everything he wanted, everything he needed. But he felt like he was called to lead this small little Mennonite congregation in Michigan. Went to seminary and pastored this church. And it was there that he began to realize that he had a gift at conveying and communicating God's truth. And he wrote a book that has been very impactful to me called Flickering Pixels. Now, it's a bit dated. It's 20-something years old. But he wrote a book called Flickering Pixels, and his premise was basically this. That when we stand and give people linear, propositional truth, just black letters on a white page, red left to right, sentence after sentence after sentence, that the human mind is actually intuitively, instinctively geared to cross its arms, and to say, I don't think so. I know this feeling. It's called Sunday afternoon for me. I know this. When we give propositional truth in nothing but linear fashion, black letters on a white page, Hibbs says, and I think he's right, people pin back their ears and listen and sniff for something with which to disagree or to critique. I get your emails. I know he's not wrong. However, he said that we as a species have been created by our creator that when we're confronted with an image, with a picture, with a 3D rich visual idea, that something happens in our brains and we instinctively, intuitively agree. We have the tendency when we see a visual, we agree with it. And so he says that you cannot simply tell people they have a sin problem. They won't listen. They won't hear it. They won't believe you. They won't care. But if you can show them a picture, then it'll begin to register, which I think he's on to something because our Bible is this wonderful, glorious collection of flickering pixels where God is communicating something to us over and over. And he loves us so deeply, so profoundly, that he will not merely give us propositional, linear left-to-right truth. He will create several pictures, ideas, and images that are irresistible. And I believe this morning as we open the Bible, we're going to have a very bright flickering pixel, and it's going to tell us this. It's our big idea for the day. This is what I want us to all walk out of here with. It goes like this. God's holiness is frightening, but for us. God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. That's the gospel. That's very good news. Perhaps I can illustrate thus. The earth's sun is hot, to which all of God's people said, well, doy, Right. But stay with me on this. The earth's sun, at least in our solar system, is unique. It alone possesses heat and warmth of itself. It is the unique sole point source of light in our solar system, and we need it. It is good for us. We have to have it. Without it, we die. But if you try to approach the earth's sun on your own terms, as in you rip the top off your Jeep and you drop it into fifth and you approach the earth's sun, you will find yourself in a very small plump clump of ash. You, you, you can't. You have to have, you need it, but if you approach it on your own terms, you won't survive. In a sense, that times a gajillion is what we're finding about the holiness of God. His holiness is his uniqueness. All of his unique godness that we have to have that is good for us, but if we attempt to approach it on our own terms, we cannot sustain, we cannot survive. God's holiness is frightening, but it is For us. Now, all this spring semester, we've been in a sermon series on the life of David, this shepherd and warrior and poet and king. And all of these narratives, all of these stories about King David are preparing us for and pointing us to the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And so, when we say in the New Testament that Jesus is the Christ, we're not merely saying that that's his last name. No, no. We're saying he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one that the whole Bible has been preparing us for and pointing us to. The sum total of all of God's promises, it's Jesus. I heard not once, but twice this week, this is truth, this week, Someone told me in two separate instances, two separate people, you know, the God of the Old Testament seems cranky and stuffy and a little bit ornery and mad, but the God of the New Testament is is loving and gracious. I want that one. I thought, wow, I hadn't heard anyone say that in a long time. A day later, someone said the exact same thing. So that notion is still out there. And it occurs to me, if we read the Old Testament and insert ourselves into all those stories, then we'll come away from the Old Testament thinking that God's just relatively cranky and basically ornery. But when we recognize that the Old Testament is giving us narratives, flickering pixels, preparing us for the person of Christ, then we begin to understand that it's the same God, that his holiness is frightening, but that it is for us. Jesus himself says, as he encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 27, he says, you've been reading scripture wrongly. You thought it was about you. But he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's pointing us to and preparing us for Jesus. So we've been studying now the life of David, believe it or not, those of you who have been here, for 11 weeks, and we have covered a lot of ground. We have finally found ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 6, so I'm going to invite you to turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and you'll notice that it's a bit out of order The writer of 2 Samuel jumps around a little bit chronologically, and so we have had to do the same. We are now back in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We've covered a lot of the life of David. This young shepherd boy who was anointed to be the next king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, who has slain Goliath, who has run from Saul, who has defeated the armies of the Philistines, who has had an affair with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. All of these things we have learned, and they have been preparing us for the final prophet and priest and king. So I'm going to begin reading now in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and in verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a bunch of dudes. Now, in some thought that that word thousand is not actually thousand, it's 30 troops, The Hebrew's a little bit uh, strange there. So maybe it's 30 troops of men or 30,000 men. In either case, it's a lot of dudes. That's that's my translation. He gathered a whole bunch of guys. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal-Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. Baal-Judah is another name for Kiriath-Yarim. We'll talk about that in a moment. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned On the cherubim. Now we have to have a little bit of an understanding of this Ark of God thing. David's going to talk about his experience moving the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. He'll write about this in Psalm 132, he'll write about it in Psalm 24, he'll write about it in Psalm 68. Super central passage to understand God's dealing with his people during the kings of Israel. But this Ark of the Covenant, we sort of have to understand a little bit about it if we're really going to appreciate what's going on in this story. So if you will allow, I need to do a little bit of a review and a rewind on what this whole Ark thing is about. Way, way back, much, much earlier than David, 500 years before David, the children of Israel are in Egypt And so once upon a time, a man named Moses is tending sheep in Midian, out in the middle of the grit and the dirt and the nowhere. And God comes to him and he says, I want you to go to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh, 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 whoa, let my people go. And that's how it's going to go. And so Moses does precisely that. And there are 10 plagues and all sorts of really harsh things that happen to the people of Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh's heart relents. He lets the children of Israel go. They cross the Red Sea and they enter in. And God tells them then and there, you're going to be unique. You're not going to be like every other people, group, tribe, and tongue ever who have always tried to fashion for themselves something that looks like me. You're not going to do that. You will not make for yourselves anything spatial because I do not occupy space. I am the God that exists. That's my name. You will not create for yourself anything that looks like me at all because nothing looks like me. Instead, you're going to create a tent, this tabernacle, And it's going to be very specific, very precise. And you're going to have a back room in that tent, in that tabernacle. And in that back room, you're going to make a box. This thing, the ark, the word is aron. It's the same word used for Noah's ark. It's just a chest or a box. And it's going to be exactly this size. Three and a half feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. It's going to be exactly this. And it's going to be made of acacia wood. Don't chintz on me now. Don't go cardboard. Don't go balsa wood. I don't even want white pine. I want acacia wood. How come? Because acacia wood comes from the desert. It's long lasting. It'll last longer than you human beings. Make it of acacia wood, and I want you to overlay it with gold both inside and out. Then you're going to have a slab of gold on top, and you're going to put some things inside that box. And then on top of that box, you're going to have two cherubim, these angels, with their wings outstretched facing one another, and that's where I will meet with you. It's not me. It doesn't look like me, but it's going to represent my presence. That's where I'm going to have interactions with you, Moses. And so Moses has it done. And they carry it around in the wilderness for 40 years. And every time they start in the morning, Moses goes before God and says, Oh, God, arise. Go before your people. Subdue your enemies. And God does. And every night when they camp, Moses, oh Lord, return, be with your people. And God always does because God desperately wants to be with his people. For 40 years, they take laps in the wilderness when finally it's time to go into the promised land. And so they take it into the conquest under Joshua. You've heard the stories. They cross the Jordan River. Those who are carrying the ark step into the Jordan at flood stages, and the waters pile up on either side, and they cross on dry land. The people of the area hear about it. They go to Jericho. You know the story. They walk around for six days, and on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls they came on tumbling down. That's in the text. The Ark represented God's presence, and they carried it around, and finally, they deposited the Ark in a tent at a place called Shiloh, and there it sits for 400 years, generally being neglected, until finally King Saul ascends the throne. He becomes the king, and he utterly neglects it as well. During that time, in the year 1050 BC, the high priest has, is named Eli, and he has two sons, And these sons say, hey, the Philistines are harassing us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the ark of God, and we're going to march it out in battle like it's a good luck charm, like it's a rabbit's foot. And they lose because God wasn't with them. And they die. And when news of this comes to their father, Eli, who is sitting on a chair, he falls back, breaks his neck, and now he's dead. This is a serious deal. And so people say, and I quote, oy vey, and they have the ark moved. The Philistines take the ark. They destroy the tabernacle, and the Philistines take the ark to their temple in the five Philistine cities. And they place the ark, the representation of the presence of God, in their temple to their false god called Dagon. But every morning they show up, well, I'll be darned. There's Dagon face down with his head removed. That's a tip off. And they say, what's going on with this? Let's set him back up. When you have to set your god back up and put his head on, that too is a tip off, but it happens again. And finally, they say, gosh, is anyone else, uh, as we're putting the the thing back on the God, does anybody else have the tumor problem that I'm having? Because I'm having some really uncomfortable tumors. (laughs) Yes, me too. And then there's all these rats. Yes, me too. Hey, I think this box is causing us some problems. We all have tumors and there's rats everywhere. I know. Let's get rid of the box. And so what does the Philistine city do in Gath? They send it on to (laughs) <laughs> the next Philistine city. Thank you. It goes from Gath to Ashkelon. And suddenly people in Ashkelon are like, oh, we have tumors and rats everywhere. This is terrible. Let's get rid of the box. And so they get rid of the box and they send it to Ekron, another Philistine city. This thing makes its rounds. It goes to five Philistine cities, causing all sorts of problems when finally some really wise men say, hey, you know what? I think we ought to just get rid of the box. Like, this isn't working out. What do we do? And the diviners, the magicians say, well, here's what you have to do. You have to get that box, put it on a cart, and uh, another box with uh, some gold representations of all our afflictions Where's our tumor forgers? Do we have any tumor forgers? Yeah, you guys, you're going to make some tumors and you're going to make some rats and some mice, put them in the box, put them on a cart, send it back. How do we do that? Here's what you do. You're going to find two milk cows that have just had calves but still have a relationship with their calves. We're going to keep the calves and shut them up. We're going to send the, co- the two cows on a yoke that have never been yoked before. We're going to send them out. If the cows turn to the left or to the right to graze, we'll know this has just been a coincidence, and wow, who can explain the tumors? That was just a weird day, but let's keep the box. But if the cows go away straight on the road, we'll know, hey, their God is, is in this. And so they do exactly that. They put the ark on a cart, but cows go off, and it says lowing and mooing all the way because they're going against their nature because apparently God is in this deal, and he leads the ark out of Philistia into the borderlands of Israel to a place called Beth Shemesh, the land of the sun. Samson's hometown, and the people of Beth Shemesh see the cows coming, they recognize the ark, and there is much rejoicing in the land, and they party, and they take, well, it was a bad day for the cows. They get butchered and offered as a sacrifice. That's weird. The cart gets used to be a fire. They chop all that up, and they have the ark, and then someone says, hey, man, I wonder what's in the box. And they look in the box, and then the text says something really horrible. Fifty thousand and seventy and 70 of them die. Now, that's a bad day. Fifty thousand and 70. Like, not just 50,000, but 50,000 and then, you know, 70. Every Hebrew manuscript says, now the ESV for some reason in 1 Samuel 6 says, that's just too many folks, we can't translate it that way, so we're just going to put an asterisk to say that's weird. But every Hebrew manuscript says fifty thousand and seventy and 70 people die. So the remaining people of Beth Shemesh, the one guy who was like, hey, I'm late, what happened? Huh? Yeah. He says, we got to get rid of this box. And so they take it to the house of a man named Abinadab. And there it sits for 20 years, during which time Craig King Saul never even worries about the ark. He does his business. But then David ascends the throne. In 2 Samuel 5, God wins the final battles against the Philistines. David now has peace politically. He's won all the victories. He has a capital in Jerusalem. He's driven out the Jebusites. It's now the center of his capital because it was neutral otherwise. Now he needs a religious center of the kingdom as well. I know we're going to go and get the ark of God because we want his presence. He's the true king of the cosmos, not me. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 3. After all of that, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Now, this is called here, Baal Judah. It's also called Kiriath-Yarim. It's about eight miles northwest of Jerusalem. Kiriath-Yarim means city of forests. It's a very lovely wooded area in the high hills outside of Jerusalem. They're going to go eight miles Now, these are probably not the actual sons of Abinadab. The book of Chronicles tells us it's his grandsons. Their father was a guy named Eliezer. They're not Levites. They're not Kohathites. Why does that matter? Because God has been very, very precise and particular. If and when you move the ark, this is how you're going to do it. They swing thrice and they miss thrice. They get it wrong after wrong after wrong. They bring it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on a hill, and Uzzah, whose name means strength, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So you don't steer an ox cart. You just hook it up, and then you kind of lead the oxen. You go in front of it, and you go behind it. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, and the worship was hot. Man, they hit that bridge in the third song, and the lights fell, and the smoke came on, and they felt it, man. This was authentic, legit, sincere. Either 30 troops of people or 30,000 people, this was stadium rock, okay? It's like a promise keeper's rally, but with the ark of God in the middle of it, all right? And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand, The ark of God and he took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Now I gotta tell you, this is one of the passages that a lot of people will say, Now you see there, the God of the Old Testament, no, thank you. I just don't have any interest. It's not fair. Uzzah was simply being instinctive. He meant well. This isn't fair, which is a dangerous misunderstanding of the flickering pixel that God is telling us in this passage. You see, God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. Uzzah reaches out his hand and takes hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, let me make sure we understand what's going on here. Uzzah and his brother Ahio lived in Kiriathere in this house for 20 years with this box in their living room. It's like the greatest homeschool program ever. You've got the Ark of God in the center of your room. Like, that's where you learn Algebra is where the presence of Yahweh is. That's a pretty good idea, right? But they had become too casual, too comfortable, too familiar with the ark. I'm sure that Uzzah feels a bit of personal responsibility for God's well-being. And so he instinctively, because he's familiar with this thing, he reaches out his hand and he grabs it. Well, that's a problem because he's not a Levite, he's not a Koathite, and they're not carrying the ark They've got it on a cart. And the text tells us two separate times this is a new cart. Why? Because the old cart was burned up at Beth Shemesh and they made a new one. Uzzah does what maybe all of us are thinking, gosh, that's what I would have done. More on that later. Verse 7 And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Whoa, that's serious. Now, I've heard some awesome theories this week as I've studied this about what happens. Some people said, oh, well, you see, the ark of God was made of acacia wood and gold. And as it's in the cart bumping along the bumpy road, it's creating a lot of movement, which creates a whole lot of static in a structure like that. And it created a latent jar, which apparently a latent jar in physics is this piece of metal that if you shake it, it creates static electricity. And so when Uzzah reaches out and touches it, it just nukes him which kind of in the flesh, I want to believe that, like that would be awesome, like this bolt of lightning just goes, and pops him, and they're all like, whoa, except that the text doesn't say that, like I kind of want for that to be true, other people say, well, one of the soldiers was so offended that Uzzah did this, that he just ran him through, that would be kind of awesome too, except that the text doesn't say that, it just simply says God struck him down, and he died, like right there, or as we say in my old hometown, he just up and died, he just up and died right there next to the yard. He didn't wriggle off and fall in a creek bed. He just up and died right there. Now listen, sometimes we have like microphone squeaks in our worship service, and it's a little bit distracting. But if someone just up and dies right there, we're going to stop. Like that interrupts the flow a little bit. Like, whoa, home's just up and died. What's happening? That's a tip-off. Something's not right. And the text tells us that, yeah, David, he didn't, he didn't like that a whole lot. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. David gets angry. Everybody wants to know, who's he angry with? He's angry with God or with himself or with Uzzah? And I think the answer is yes. David is the king. He is the ritual responsible one here. He's put all this together. He got 30,000 of his closest friends gathered together, and it's going well until it isn't. He's angry at God. God, I thought we had a thing here. I was, I was bringing you into the capital. I was going to make a big deal about you. David begins to think of God transactionally. You ever been there? Like, I did this for you, God. You're supposed to do this for me. How come you don't? And God says, because I owe you nothing. I will never owe you anything. And yet I enter into covenant with you. I bind myself, but I owe you nothing. David's angry. I think at himself. Why did I let this happen? He's angry with Uzzah. Why were you so casual and flippant with God? But then his fear turns in verse nine. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? See, this is the honest question of every seeker. How can I ever have actual right standing before a holy God? How can I ever actually approach the earth's sun? It'll consume me. How can I experience its warmth and receive life from it? That's his question. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. He cools his heels, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Some have thought that Gittite means that he is... a a Philistine from Gath. Probably not. Gittite means two wine presses. This guy had some affluence and he lived almost next door today, but just slightly southwest of Jerusalem in a land of two wine presses. And so I want you to imagine the scene. 30,000 people gathered together. You've heard the stories that 50,070 died in Beth Shemesh. 20 years later, this guy just drops dead and they go, hey, Obed-Edom, we got a surprise. Your house isn't locked, is it? Because here we come. No! And they drop this thing off, and it stays in his house for three months. Now, we know from the book of Chronicles that Obed-Edom is a Levite. Not only is he a Levite, but he is from the tribe of Koha. That's important because in Numbers 4 and in Numbers 7, it tells them, you must always carry the ark. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. Don't look in it. You have to keep it covered, and it's never to go in a cart. You have to carry it. This guy apparently has it brought into his house. He is a, a Levite. He is a Kohite. And he looks after it for three months, and something really amazing happens. Verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of obed the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed obed and all his household. There is fruitfulness there. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of obed and all that belongs to him. See, the Lord, by grace, gives his word to David and says, David... I'm not through with you. I am still desperate to be with you and to be with my people and you have not outrun my grace. I'm still coming for you. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now it's a party again. Second time. The first time they bring the ark up, it ends with tragedy. Uzzah dies. The second time we bring up the ark, it's also going to end with tragedy just a different way. Both times, there's blessing and tragedy, okay? Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord, <laughs> somebody went back and read the book. Went, oh, I'll be. We're not supposed to put it on a cart. We're supposed to carry this thing. Oh, put poles through the rings and carry it, and we have to keep it covered, and we don't touch it. We don't look at it. We don't think about it. We draw, and draw pictures of it. We just carry it, and we go on about our business. Somebody read the book. Always a good idea. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal when they had gone six steps, just six, not seven, because seven's the whole number of completion. David's saying, we're going to slow this down. David's beginning to understand the enormity of sin. It is a really big deal. He's not going to be casual and comfortable and flippant with the presence of God. They're going to go six steps, and they're going to stop. And it's going to be costly. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be messy. It's going to take a really long time, and they're going to worship the entire way. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. This is the very first time you see the overbite happening. This is David doing it right there. All of his might, it's in full force. And David was wearing a linen ephod. David's wearing priestly garbs. No, he is not a priest and he's not usurping the priest's position. But in this unique case, as he's ushering God into his throne, it is the job of the king to represent the people. And so he's dressed in a linen garb. Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. They're giving it everything they've got. Verse 16 is the tragedy. Here's the sour note. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, we're gonna hear this over and over again that she is Saul's daughter, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. Guys, you ever, you ever had one of those days? You come home and there's that look. You're like, ooh, it just got cold in here. It's a bad day. You got, you got to fix it. You can't let that linger. She despised him in her heart, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place. Apparently, David had already prepared a new tabernacle. He had pitched a new tent to house the ark, and it was ready. Inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. These burnt offerings, by the way, suddenly David goes biblical. Now he remembers These burnt offerings are to be consumed utterly by fire to represent God's judgment against sin. An innocent has to die for the sin of another. And David is prodigal. He's extravagant and some might even say wasteful in how much he does in way of sacrifice because he's saying, we get it. Your holiness is frightening, but we also understand that it is for us. Verse 18 and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. So in both instances of trying to take the ark, we had tragedy and blessing. The first time Uzzah was the tragedy, but Obed experienced blessing. The second time around, Michael's reaction is a tragedy, but now David is going to bless the entire nation. He distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each other. (laughs) That's kind of funny. I'll explain why in a moment. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. David gives them raisin cakes. Uh, That's like sending everybody home with a Barry White record or a Kenny G LP, okay? It's like, hey, everybody, God's going to bless us. Now it's time for y'all to go home and party. We're going to grow, and God's going to bless this thing. Here's some raisin cakes. And everyone went, Why? Raisin cakes. Hurry, let's go. It's a blessing to the nation saying, We're going to be fruitful. We're going to be fertile. We're going to be blessed. God is with us. David's role in blessing them. Now, verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. Hey, we're going to be blessed. But, oh, but, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. Three times she's going to mention that he uncovered himself. Apparently, like every old guy my age, don't show your ankles. That's a, bad, that's a bad look. Don't ever, like, long pants, fellas. You get to be a certain age, long pants, all right? David uncovers himself, and she's offended. She's offended because no king ever does this. This is not what kings and sovereigns are supposed to do. And David says, yeah, I don't care about that. Verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Ooh, now that's cold. And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. A lot of questions there. Is that because David no longer went into her or is that because she was struck barren by the Lord? We're not told, but I have a sense. I think this story, this chapter is a bright flickering pixel that is telling us something super important about the God we love and serve. God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. Now, there is so much we could glean from this, so many separate flickering pixels. But I just want to give us three implications of how I think this text is pertinent and practical and profound for every single one of us. Number one is this. God's worship must be built on God's word. There is no question that these people were sincere as they first tried to move the ark from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem. They were sincere, they were authentic, and they were feeling it. I mean, come on, there is music, there is emotion, there is passion, and they're singing in community. What could be better than that? Well, what could be better than that is actually considering what God wants and what he cares about and what he likes and what he's interested in seeing. The king of Israel, before he ascends the throne, was to have written the entire law of Moses in his own hand, letter for letter. David should have known better. In fact, I think he did. David knew Numbers 4. David knew number 7. He knew that the ark was not to be trifled with, not to be put on a cart, not to be looked at. It was supposed to have been carried by Levites. that were Kohathites. He knew this. But instead, he puts it on a new cart. Why? Because the Philistines had. Rather than consulting and immersing himself in God's word, he looked at the world around him and said, hey, that's working for them. Those oxen didn't stumble. We'll do it that way. Maybe times have changed. Maybe God's not like that anymore. Wrong. God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. He looked at the world and decided to adopt that pattern for worship rather than the biblical model. And lest we think, oh, what a tedious list of silly rules. The point was just to get the ark from point A to point B. Wrong. That's errant thinking. The point is the reverence of the holiness of the one being worshipped as a demonstration of faith and adoration and to do exactly as he says because he knows best. We can say that we love the Lord all we want, but if we never actually do what he says, then we're wrong. Those of you who have children, you know this feeling. When your children obey you simply because they love you, it is the greatest sensation. One day, you'll get to experience it too. I'm praying for that moment. One day, it'll happen. No, it happens all the time. I'm just kidding. The point is God's holiness. It is a demonstration of our affection and our faith that we actually believe to do what he says. Second point, we are worse off than we think. Now, that's not real good news. But it is, let me explain. As we said a couple weeks ago when we talked about David's affair with Bathsheba, sin is a really big deal. It's a bigger deal than we think it is. Many of us have a hard time really believing that our sin is really that big of an offense to God because down deep, we're really not all that bad. We're pretty good and decent and moral. But this whole picture is a flickering pixel. It's It's a startling reminder that our species of humanity is to be regarded with a low anthropology. We are not as awesome as our culture likes to communicate. We're not. But you see, this is also the good news of the gospel. We are worse off than we think, and yet we are more. We are loved more than we can ever imagine. See, Uzzah's problem is not merely that he touched the ark. Uzzah's problem was that he did not believe the gospel. Uzzah had become familiar with the ark, and he said, You know what? I know this God, and this God knows me. I can just have him on my terms. I'm not that bad of the guy. But the gospel says you are worse than you think, and yet God loves you more than you can imagine. Uzzah's error was his failure to believe the gospel, and it is the same thing we encounter. Look, at the end of the day, here's what happened Uzzah saw the ark begin to shift. And from his heart of hearts, the place that actually determines his actions, he thinks to himself instinctively and intuitively, my hand is cleaner than the ground. I'm better than the ground. I'm not that bad of a guy. Had he had an accurate, actual picture of his own sin, he would never have touched the ark of God, ever. But he thinks to himself, I'm not that bad. God's lucky to have me on his team and that is a miss of the gospel. We are worse off than we think, and we are more loved than we can ever imagine. a thought too much of himself and too little of God. Now, this third point, um, I'm going to do a little bit of relationship meddling. In our day, we call that counseling, but I'm going to call it what it is. This is relationship meddling. Third point goes like this. Worship reveals the rifts in our relationships. There's so much that can be said about this last piece that describes Michael and David, but I really think it is the hinge in his life that changes his direction and that ultimately leads to that sorry affair he has with Bathsheba in chapter 11. We know that previously Michael had loved David. She actually saves his life, helping him to escape out of a window from her crazy father. She risked her own life to save David's, but now she finds herself trapped behind a window. For starters, she's apparently not a part of this procession that involves both men and women and slave girls. She's home. Somewhere along the way, David has not brought her and involved her. Now, he's the king. He could, of course, command her. But it's apparent that something has happened. He is not involving his spouse in his spiritual fervor. She's the one that's been left out, made to feel inferior because she doesn't feel the same level of spiritual fervor. And so there is this bitterness she sarcastically says what she says. Oh, how you've dignified yourself. And she shouldn't have said that, but she's already bitter. And David explodes like most passive-aggressive men do. He takes it as long as he can, and then he explodes, and he does two really awful things. Really. First thing, oh, man, he brings up her daddy. Don't bring up her daddy. Don't he brings up her dad. Oh, hey, God made me king, not your loser dad. Where is he now? That's right, without his head, dead and buried. Don't ever bring up the in-laws. That's off base, okay? When you find yourself bringing up the in-laws, abort. Go to Dairy Queen have a daily bar. Don't bring up the in-laws. But then he says this, oh, oh, you don't like that the slave girls are respecting me? You don't like that? I will have all the esteem of all these slave girls that you're talking about. They wish they had me as their husband, I remember a well-known preacher named Paul David Tripp when he was sort of on his meteoric rise on the speaking circuit, began to be sort of well-known and famous and highly sought after on the preaching circuit. And yet he'll tell the story himself that because of that, he wasn't home a whole lot and his wife was getting left behind and it was creating problems and bitterness. Now I'm telling this story about Paul Tripp because this would never happen in my house, but I'm telling this story about Paul Tripp. He came home one day and they got into a fight. And here they go, they're fighting, and they're fighting, and they're fighting. And finally he says to her, well, you know what? There are a hundred women in this church that would love to be my wife. And she said without missing a beat, well, I'm not one of them today. That's a bad day. And it totally changed their relationship. David, I believe the text is giving us a hint, he withdraws his affection and his husband responsibility to his wife and effectively curses her which leads in just a few chapters him walking around the roof with nothing to do when he spies Bathsheba. Listen, if you think, man, I'm so far ahead of my husband spiritually or I'm so far ahead of my wife spiritually, I'm just going to get my worship on in front of her or in front of him, and then, and then she'll come alongside too. Wrong. Stop. What God wants is for you and your spouse to be bound together by his Spirit together. Simply getting your worship on is only going to reveal the cracks that exist. That's not going to solve the problem. See, God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. The ark of God is a tremendous story. Why are we talking about the ark of God in 2 Samuel 6? On Palm Sunday, the ark of God was not supposed to look like God. It was supposed to represent his presence and his involvement with his people. The ark of God contained what God was communicating and conveying to humanity. I mentioned this earlier. I want to circle back. The ark had three things in it. There was the law of God, God's perfect code of moral righteousness. There was the rod of Aaron that budded. It was a a rod that had been cut off from a tree that God made this dead thing come to life to show the resurrecting power that he brings life from death. It had a jar of manna that demonstrates God's provision for his people, And of course, there was the mercy seat, that which receives and requires the blood of a sacrifice so that God can actually commune with man as a result of a propitiating shed blood. But the ark, after the time of David, 500 years later, it goes missing. It sits there being generally neglected. And 500 years after David, the ark goes missing mysteriously. The Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, and the ark vanishes. We never hear from it again. At the same time, the prophet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 10, 11, and 12 that the glory of God departs. He just leaves. doesn't want to go. He drags his heels. He does not want to go. But finally, Ezekiel has a vision a vision of God himself standing up between the two cherubim, standing up and stepping off, and departing the Holy of Holies, departing the tabernacle, departing Jerusalem, and going out the eastern gate. Ichabod. Is the word, the glory of God has departed. And for 500 long years, the ark is lost. Until one day, Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the ark of God himself triumphantly enters. Jesus comes riding in the town on a colt, as is the prophecy of Zechariah. 9. Zechariah 9, amid this great fervor and joy, this procession. And then, just as a 1,000 years previously in the days of David, they didn't understand either. But then, one account says that Jesus, as he enters in as the ark of God, weeps over the city, the gospel of Luke 19 says. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to myself, but you wouldn't have it. You're treating me like my holiness is easily accessible. It is not. In another account, the first thing he does when he comes into town is he goes to the temple and he cleanses it, knocking over tables and chasing out money changers. Why? Because they're taking God too casually and too flippantly. See, the ark of God has returned. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus... Tabernacled among us. At his incarnation at Advent, he came and he took on flesh. He took up a tent, if you will, in human form. Just as David brought the ark into Jerusalem, a tent that he had created, Jesus himself is God tabernacled among us. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the demands of the law. God's moral code of righteousness, it's Jesus who lived a perfect life of active obedience. He is the resurrection and the life. Like Aaron's rod that budded, he is the one who brings life from death. He is the bread of life, the one who gives and sustains everlasting life. And of course, Jesus is the one whose own blood was shed so that the holiness of God would not consume us, but rather invite us into his presence. Jesus is the David that David never was. He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. Which begs the question, is he yours? See, Jesus is the great, grand, flickering pixel from the Father to remind us that God's holiness is frightening, but it is for us. Jesus has come that we might experience the holiness of God and not be afraid. And so I ask this morning, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a believer, you've got a lot of thoughts and ideas about Jesus, that he was a good guy, a nice man, swell rabbi, We just want you to know that we believe that God's word is inerrant and it says that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One of Israel, and that he has come and that he will come again, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, that he is the one who brings life from death, that he is the one who gives everlasting life. We live the eternal in the now. So I invite you to believe, maybe against all explanation, but to simply believe As much as you need holiness, you must have a mediator. That mediator is Jesus. For the rest of us, as we enter in this week of rest, holy week, I invite you to believe all over again, to repent of our casual flippancy towards the holiness of God and be awestruck all over again at what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. His holiness is frightening. (laughs) But the good news of Easter is that it is for us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, in the Messiah, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I do pray, God, this morning, if there's someone here who does not know you, that on this Palm Sunday they will see that the ark of God has again returned, the glory of Israel has returned, and he will come again. That they would believe above and beyond their capacity to understand or explain it all, they would simply believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He did what he said he would do, and that they would have the courage and the boldness to talk to someone they know and love and trust about this. I beg you, if that's you, to not leave this room without at least having the courage and the intellectual honesty to ask God if this is true. For the rest of us, Father, would you flicker a pixel in our hearts and minds all over again? Help us to fall more deeply in love with Jesus because of his deep, deep love for us. And may we rest this week in his finished work. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us on this Palm Sunday. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction on your way up. I want to remind you of our Holy Week activities. Wednesday, we need you to sign up for that Passover Seder, Bethelbible.com slash Easter. Good Friday, 7 o'clock in this very room. And then on Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be full. We're just going to have two services. If you can at all, we would love to invite you to come to the 9 o'clock service. We'll have overflow services on the first floor in the large listening room. But for now, oh, also, if you're a life group leader, we're having our life group connect. Right after I say amen, down on the second floor, lots of things going on. Let me offer this word of benediction. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may you, as little arks of his covenant,